Hey, it's Arlen. This is a special episode of Your First Million. It is brought to you by my new book, which is in pre-order right now. It comes out May 5th, 2020. It's called It's About Damn Time. You can pre-order it right now at prh.com slash it's about damn time. And if you order it on certain websites today, you do not pay for it until the day it is shipped out to you. So check out those websites individually. You're going to recognize a lot of them, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. I don't know which ones exactly do this, but you'll want to check it out yourself. And uh, that can be kind of helpful to the pocketbook if it's something that you want to support and make sure you don't forget. You order it now, but you don't have to pay for it until closer to the date it is shipped out to you, closer to May 5th. It's about damn time. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to your first million. It's Arlen. We're going to try something a little different this time where I am going to present to you a full episode of another person's podcast. So today we are going to listen in on an interview that someone had with me on their podcast. The podcast is called What the Fockery and it is hosted by Nadej August and it came out on her stream this month in in January, a few days ago. And I decided, A, I love the interview. I thought it was really great. She asked some great questions and I got to talk about a lot of different things that many of you who are your first million listeners have asked me about personally. And B, because I wanted to start doing something that the bigger podcasts do, which is usually on a big podcast platform that has several million listeners and is really well-funded, what they'll do to cross-promote is they will play new episodes of new series within their own shows so that it's kind of like sharing across channels. So I thought that was a really cool idea that the big dogs do. And I thought, well, we could certainly do that ourselves because both of us have our own podcasts and why don't we just trade out? So this episode will be exactly like it was on the What the Fockery uh, line. We talk a lot about breaking down what venture capital is. And then we talk a lot about me being LGBTQ, being a gay black woman. And it's um, I talk very openly about it, which I have always done, but it gives you even more insights into why I do that. So I think you'll like this. If you want me to do more of these, just let me know. Just send me some messages and let me know that you want to hear more interviews here. What I also might do is start playing some of the feeds of my fireside chats or my uh, keynote speeches that I give. I speak all over the world and um, sometimes we record what I say. And maybe we can put that into the feed too, like some other Uh, podcasters do. If you like this podcast episode, if you like the way that this interview is conducted, you want to know more, check out What the Fockery. It's the name of the podcast. It's where Nadaj interviews people from all backgrounds and she talks about things that we sometimes don't talk about, like uh, different subjects of have you ever wondered what that means or do you have you ever wondered how that works? She will interview people and ask them those hard questions for you so you don't have to ask. I'll give you a quick overview of a few other titles of podcasts. My podcast episode that you'll hear right now is called Venture Capitalist, and it's episode 30. In the past, she's had Love Doctor, Astrology, Hypnotherapy, 
divine current breathing, addiction expert, spiritual expert, what does intersex mean, transgender. It's really interesting. Infertility, life coach, veganism, polyamory, all sorts of topics that we might not understand because we might not be living in those lifestyles or have that as part of who of our DNA, but we are so curious about it. She does the heavy lifting for us, interviews people who can speak for themselves about it, and then there you go. So this is that. I hope everyone enjoys, and I will see you on the other side. Entrepreneurial success needs more than an idea. It needs passion. It needs a plan. It needs money. Now, where does one get said money? A couple years ago, I had what I thought was a genius idea, and well-meaning people would say things to me like, you need to do a crowdfund. You need angel investors. You need investors. You need a loan. You need a venture capitalist. Wait, what? What the fuckery is venture capitalism? about to find out. I'm Nadezh August, your host. If this is your first time, welcome, and here's what you can expect. What the Fockery is a podcast about the things we hear about but don't know enough about, a series of conversations dedicated to hearing firsthand from the very people whose lifestyle, truths, or concepts we struggle with understanding, the very things we should know about but are afraid to discuss, Our subjects and topics may or may not be mainstream, but our guests and sometimes experts are in it, living their truth whether we accept them or not. And if in that process we manage to bring clarity to you, dear listener, then thank you for being curious, open, and willing. In that vein today, my conversation partner and dream guest, by the way, is Arlen Hamilton who went from being on food stamps in 2015 and sleeping on the floor of the San Francisco airport to breaking into the Boys Club of Silicon Valley. She is now the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital and has raised more than 10 millions of dollars, that is, and has invested in over 100 companies led by people of color, women, and LGBTQ. Her weekly podcast, Your First Million, goes behind the scenes and teaches you how to make your first million, whether it be dollars, downloads, or customers. Her upcoming book, It's About Damn Time, is available for pre-order anywhere you buy books and is set to release sometime in May 2020. Is that right, Arlen? Yes, May 5th. May 5th, 2020. Is there anything you can't do, Arlen? Uh, <laughs> marry a man. <laughs> I don't know. Fair enough. I yes. mean, you're very open. You say you're a woman, you're black, and you are gay. That is true. Incidentally, I've always been curious about that. Is that an important thing to share? Is it important for me to say it? Yes. Uh, often? Yeah, it is important in my view. Um, I definitely know... Over the years, at 39, I know over the last 15 years or so, my being out and proud, no matter what industry I was in or where I was in my life, has uh, has affected people. And I've had people come up to me and say that they, they 
contemplated suicide or they had trouble, they thought they were going to be kicked out of their homes or they were kicked out of their homes or they're just simply lonely. And uh, me being so openly proud as a gay black woman or as a gay woman, depending on the group, uh, really helped them. And so I learned that early 20s and, and never stopped. Hmm. It's an inspiration because people are looking at you and you are a role model um, for them. Yeah, and for some. I for think, some. you know, I think, I just think living in your truth is cool. I also fully appreciate that some people don't have the luxury of being able to talk about it, whether it's for, um, they're, they're afraid of their, 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 uh, they're in danger in some way or they are just simply just not equipped emotionally to handle people knowing yeah. lest uh, we forget in some countries it's still illegal yeah you get arrested. punishable by death in some countries absolutely and some and, and here in the u.s people are still getting killed because they're gay or they're they're trans or uh, some form of queer and i just it's just always been really important to me to talk about it and also just in general uh, it's not always uh, activism. It's I'm just happy and proud. Mm -hmm. You know, you are to, who you to, are. To be who I am. What yeah. you see is what you get, and that's that. No agenda. It's it is yeah. what it is. That is correct. Well, to get back on track, so this podcast is sort of like this 101 of things. So, for the layperson, and I would venture to say most people don't know what venture capitalism is. I certainly don't. I listen to your podcast. Mm -hmm. I think I understand it. But would you, as a basic definition tell yeah. us what that is what yeah. does that entail and I, I kind of purposely don't talk about venture capitalism on the podcast because i want it to be more mainstream and easily acceptable uh, because it's not a term that most people yeah, come it's, across it's a very small sliver of private equity and so what caught my eye and just so i set the foundation i did not know what venture capitalism was a few years ago had no idea this Late, is pre-2015 oh yeah yeah, I didn't know what it was. I, probably till I was, like I said, I'm 39 now, probably till I was 30, 31, I didn't know what it was. And so it, I would hear it here and there in the kind of the background, maybe on a TV show or someone would talk about it on, you know, from flipping through the channel on Bloomberg or something. But to me, it was kind of like I didn't know much about Wall Street. And it, it turns out that a lot of uh, uh, underrepresented people worked on Wall Street and have worked on Wall Street. So it's a, it's a little bit of pulling back the curtain. But essentially, the easiest way to think about it is if you think about some of the the companies and products that you use today, like uh, an Apple phone, or if you ever have used Airbnb or ever walk into a WeWork or have your food delivered by a DoorDash or a Postmates, etc. Uh, these companies, um, for by and large, uh, started with some form of seed capital. And early on, that could have been friends and family if they had the means, themselves if they had the means. But very quickly, once you pass a certain level, you at this stage, if you are a company thinking that I want to be a global company, or I want to be a billion dollar company, a big company, you tend to reach out to the venture capital world for this small sliver uh, uh uh, respectively, uh, of venture capital, innovative capital, early uh, fueling capital for big vision businesses. And so you have angel investors, which are just individuals, which, you know, who are amazing, who invest their own capital, they'll put 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 in. And then you have venture capitalists who are going to put in 
at the very least $100,000. They may put in $2 million. They may put in $10 million along your path. And there's like also a pretty standard way that, that this plays out. And it's kind of boring, actually, because it's – it's in this, this series. So you do a pre-seed round, which again can be friends and family, can be angel investors, can be maybe. Is certain- it like crowdfunding? What most people would. Yeah. So crowdfunding is, crowdfunding is is in the same arena, but it's not on the same in the same lane. lane. Okay. Crowdfunding is um, well, today you can crowdfund as a, as an investor. And, or you can be part of that crowdfunding round as an investor. And certainly it's in the same category as like the angel investments or friends and family round. Um, and sometimes people use that for their pre-seed in their early startup. stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So venture tries to very desperately to distinguish itself from that because um, it's not better or worse, but it is a different category. It is the big, the easiest way I can tell you to differentiate is venture capitalists are spending other people's money. They're spending the money of high net worth individuals who who like give them money and say, you are now managing that money for me. It's also insurance companies, pension funds, which is really interesting because you kind of you may not realize it, but you may be yourself paying into a pension fund that is now investing in venture capital that turns right around and invests that money into Airbnb. Mm. So it's it's really interesting. And then um and then these institutionals like uh college endowments and major funding from uh big corporations and things like that. Th- those all go into a venture capitalist coffers. And then that venture capitalist somewhere along the way picks up sometimes at the earliest stage, one of the earliest stages, which is seed. So you have pre-seed, then you have seed, and then where it gets to be really uh, mundane is you have series A, and then series B, and then series C, and then series D. And every one of those is a round of funding that's usually anywhere between six and two, six months and two years apart from each other. If the company is doing well, quote unquote, reaching metrics it said it would last time that goes out for another round of funding so they can grow and the whole point of it is for there to be this hockey stick uh growth uh and the the goal is just as an example the goal would be a venture capitalist or several of them put in 10 million dollars into a company that becomes worth uh uh, a billion and their 10 million accounted for 10 percent and so now they have a hundred billion a hundred million uh, at their disposal made. Yeah. right so the goal is you put money in as a venture capitalist this is not your own money and you hope to make money back for your investors okay i was about to say so when does an investor come in but that is so you're managing a fund you're like a yeah, fund, manager fund manager of start but it's different no i'm, I'm managing a fund so yeah i mean it's I'm probably making it more complicated than it is. It really is just there are a couple of players. There's, there's there is an angel investor who's investing their own money. So, um, th- let's say you have ten thousand dollars you want to invest in startup companies, and I won't get into really how you do that because that's not what this topic is. But let's say that that's a group you can certainly Google that and learn about crowdfunding and crowd investing, and it's really exciting. You have ten thousand. You're going to invest five thousand into two companies, and you do that in 2020. Okay, what you're hoping as an angel investor is that that company is growing, and then somewhere along the way, 
whether it's six months from now, a year, two years from now, the next, it does so well that it attracts a bigger pot of money mm-hmm. who wants to also invest. Because when that happens, and again, I'm saying this from a point of view of the facts. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. This right. is just a, this is the how trajectory. it works. This is how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, when that happens, let's say you put in 5000 into uh, a, a company that is an infrastructure company. And it's a, it's a, a global infrastructure company in some way, something like that. And when you put in the 5000 you received 1% of the company. So the company was worth 500000 Let's say that, that that's just an example. Mm-hmm. Two years from now, that company did everything it said it would in its projections. It actually outdid their projections. And they're, while they're making revenue, they feel like if they had an influx of maybe $2 million, they could really knock this out the park and really go to make, be a bigger, bigger company. So they decide to go out and raise $2 million. They're not going to raise that from a bunch of angels necessarily. They're going to go to one or two venture investors who have raised themselves a $100 million fund. And they're going to say, will you give me a million dollars each to you two? And when they do that, because they're putting in more money, the valuation of the company has to go. The stocks have to be kind of recalibrated. And now the valuation is higher than that 500000 originally. They put in $2 million, Maybe the valuation now is $10 million. So that's a 20x change. So when you're the angel and you put your money in, you're moving your 5,000 is now worth 100,000 on paper. On paper. So you're hoping. So these groups of people, while they're not the same type of person, they're kind of reliant on each other. Venture capitalists need angels, whether they know it or not. They need angels to seed early stage big ideas because they can't make those small bets. They just it just doesn't work math mathematically for them. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to. So they need angels and people who are like, you know, it's I'll put 5000 into two companies. And if one of them doesn't work out, it's going to be OK, because hopefully the other one will two X for me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that is it's it's all part of the same ecosystem. Um, now, when you get into it and you start talking to people who are angels or people who are venture capitalists, sometimes they don't like each other. I think they should. Well, they don't like each other because what they view each other as competition. Well, or sometimes, but maybe there more of an annoyance. Oh. More of a, yeah, it's a classism and mm-hmm. a more of an annoyance. So angels, and this is again broad. This is not everybody, but you know, for peeling back the layers and talking about it, angels sometimes look at venture capitalists as sharky. They're looking at them like they're going to come in, and although they're going to make the the value of the company bigger they might try to wipe me out they may try to erase my history of being so early and i thought i i believed in them for two years more than these guys but because they have a lot of money now they are the heroes Mm -hmm. and they're trying to like get me out of the picture and give me give me 2x instead of the 10x i deserve because they have that power now that they can do that that is possible yes oh yeah all, all kinds of things and contracts and pref- preferred uh, returns and all sorts of things can happen. Now, the venture capitalists, the ones that I think are the, the evolved ones, the clever ones, the ones that are going to continue to do well, they know that they need angels, like I said, to, to, to seed what they're doing. They need really not only to seed financially, but to give that wisdom and that support early on for those founders so they can make it to them. And the food chain, they can make it up to them. But sometimes venture capitalists look at angels as like tourists. Mm -hmm. They're not professional investors. They don't get a salary to do this incredible work that I do. So 
they're they're giving terms that are too lenient and they're doing things that I have to clean up after you've been there. Mm. So there's this there's this push and pull sometimes and you have a lot of men who are VCs and angels. So you have a lot of ego and there's a lot of this sharp elbow stuff. But I think more and more right now, just with any everything that's going on in entertainment and, and VC world, which is venture capital world. I think you're also you have this uh, this new emergence of the thoughtful uh, investor, mm. the collaborative, the conscious, yes, investor. exactly, yeah. And so that is breeding, and I I consider myself in that category. I'd say, yeah, and and so that is breeding more uh, like a collaborative efforts and more of a we need you as much as you need us. So let's let's you know now you have people like um, there's a fund that I like a lot. They're called First Round Capital. And they're based in Philadelphia and in San Francisco. And they're and they, angels. No, they're, they're a VC. Huh? They have hundreds of millions of dollars under management. But what they have figured out is that, yes, they need angels to be in the, in the networks, to be finding these deals for them. Yeah, because the angels are like, they to me, I, the image I'm getting, they're like, they sniff out the good deals. Yes, they do. And they help bring a company to the, to the forefront, surf- yeah, to, to the, the surface. surface. And then the venture capitalists can come in and just and swoop in. Swoop in. Yes. And they can do, and they do that. And so you can see how the vi- venture capitalists might say that's a little unwieldy because they're going to bring up a lot of junk too. But for the angels, the groundwork, the grunt work is really important. So the first round capital, what I think is is a great manifestation of this idea of conscious, as you say, conscious investing and collaborative investing is that they now have an angel track program. So they are actually teaching people how to be angels, oh. which doesn't do anything for their bottom line, does not give them a, a return on investment. They simply understand that as the big guns, if they come in and help more thoughtful uh, sharp people learn and diverse mm-hmm. groups learn how to invest. They're going to get seeded with better and better companies. Smart. So they not only figured it out and say that's true. That's true. They've also said, let's. What can we do to make it even sharper mm-hmm. and make the align even more? Which I think we're going to see a lot more of. That's exciting. Can we talk a little bit about your own company, Backstage yes. Capital? Yes. How did that start? So you, this is your history is so interesting. Um, I'm sure your book will go into details. Yes. We will talk about why you chose that title. And I feel like whenever I say that title, I have a little, I have to have a little swirl. Like gotta, it's about neck damn time. Yeah, put that neck in. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Backstage Capital. You're in San Francisco. You don't know anyone in Silicon Valley. You don't have any contacts. What was your motivation? How did you even, did you, you said you didn't even know what that was, what venture capital For a while, was. Uh, yeah, until I was about 30. What I was, was actually your goal? in Texas. I was actually in Texas. I grew up in, in Dallas. And you were in music, weren't you? I worked, I worked my way up to being a production coordinator for some musicians, for sure. That took a long time to do. And this was in Texas? So I, d- I did that from, based in Texas. So I would go out on the road and, and go out with them. But in Texas is when I really learned about venture capitalism just from books and from reading and videos and, and interviews and all. it was a homeschool and I wasn't even in San Francisco which was where everything was Silicon Valley is just south of San Francisco uh, proper and um, I spent a few years homeschooling teaching myself all the jargon who the players were how the mechanics of it worked because I said the whole purpose of it was why I learned to begin with is I learned one day I was kind of reading through and curious about startups and oh maybe I'll start a company 
And I, le- I saw this statistic that 90% of all venture funding goes to straight white men. Hmm. And I was like, what? <laughs> like in the U.S., I was like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because I know so many people who aren't straight white men who are starting companies and, and who could start companies if they had backing and mm-hmm. things like that. I thought that was so weird and so offensive. And then I started looking and I saw the same stat. 90% of venture capitalists were white men. As well. And people so tend to hire it, people who look like them absolutely. and help people who look like them. So their networks were just insulated. And they were just investing in the same types of people over and over again. And then those people would make a lot of money and then they would invest in their networks. So you've heard of like the PayPal mafia mm-hmm. and how much they've gone on to do. I was like, well, where is our mafia? Like, where Where is the mafia for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ? And in walks Arlen. Yes. So, <laughs> so to me, it was just like this puzzle, this grand puzzle that I was putting together, completely not thinking I was going to really do it because I thought... What I thought I was going to do early days was I will compile the research, I will come up with a thesis, I will present the thesis, and someone else will do the work, and I will have helped them as some sort of caddy or some sort of thought you know, processor and leader in it. Like a coach. And I'll get, yeah, I'll get some sort of, I'll get the the credit for coming up with it but there's no way i'm going to be a venture capitalist i don't have any money i'm broke i'm on food stamps that's a million miles away from me that's what i thought at the time but at the same time when i would reach out to people and try to talk to them about it where they're you know these investors or people they would just be all cagey and they would be like wait a minute you weren't supposed to open the curtain you were not supposed to come back here <laughs> you know and i was like what are they trying to hide so that's when i thought oh it's b- the reason all of this is going on is because there are just a very few people who know all these rules and regulations all all the players and they've figured out that there's a lot of money to be made here a lot of power to wield in innovation and they want it all to themselves mm-hmm. and they were not expecting this gay black woman from Texas to come in with no college education to come in and, and just start asking down that door. just start asking questions <laughs> yeah yeah just start asking questions like wait a minute that doesn't make it so it's like a and movie, challenging right them, just, you? like I was challenging I was asking questions I was being bold because I didn't have any reason not to not to be. I was saying nothing stuff, to lose I was raising my hand and saying this this and that so when that started happening I started seeing how cagey these rich uh, successful guys were being I was like wait a minute. If I make them this nervous <laughs> and this uncomfortable, I've seen enough General Hospital and enough scandal to know <laughs> how there's, this, there's something cool. That there's a fuckery back there. <laughs> yeah. There's something that could be that could happen here. So I decided, OK, if no one else will do it, no one will listen to me. No one will take me seriously. I'll do it myself. And I just set out to raise. Uh, I was going to it was different amounts at different times, but ended up um going out to raise more than a million dollars and and it took three years to get my very first person to say yes to 25k Mm. so it was just this uphill battle and has been actually since then amazing amazing we're going to learn so much more from the book what can we expect is it more of an autobiography where we hear more about your life for instance it's it's how do you end up on food stamps Mm. yeah so so it's it's partial memoir uh, inspirational and then in business. So um, my hope is that it's put placed in the business section. It is on a business imprint of, of, of Random House. It's on currency. So it's not a full memoir of how I got to that point. I mean, I do talk about my childhood. I talk about my mother. Um, 
I take different pieces, and again, this is the book, It's About Damn Time. Mm-hmm. Um, I take different pieces, uh, different anecdotes from my life. Because my if you if you if I think about it in pieces, it's just kind of interesting. But if I put it all together, I'm like, that's been a really weird uh, interesting mixture. journey. Yeah, it's been very, you know, nonlinear and really interesting. And so I'll take uh, those pieces and kind of talk about what happened very candidly, what happened in those moments um, that I don't think anybody else can can say that they've gone through this very specific moments and then how it can be applied to you. Because for me, it's about damn time for for me to be where I am and where I'm going. It's about damn time for, for, those the, for, under- the, insti- for, uh, for the institution mm-hmm. to get it. To open and then up. ultimately it's about damn time for us. Right. It's our time. The underrepresented. Yes. yes. So it's interesting because it's almost as if you found your purpose and your mission before actually doing it. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that you had that inkling mm-hmm. of you recognize that there was something missing, that there was a, that, you know, and you just stepped up and said, okay, I showed up and you're still showing up. Mm-hmm. I am a big LGBTQIA advocate and supporter. Um, I wonder if you would speak to us a little bit about what it was like, if you don't mind, when you first came out. No, yeah, I don't mind at all. Uh, I came out in stages like most people do. It's not one big party. I guess maybe it is these days, but, you know, at 16, (laughs) 20 some years ago, it wasn't. It was in stages. First had to come out to myself. First had to realize what it was what was going on. How old were you? I think I was I was 15 just going into 16 when I understood what was going on. I think I had inklings of it very early and that I would have crushes on beautiful black women who were like in their 30s. I would just look at them, pictures of them and just be like, "Oh my god." And and to me it was well, she's beautiful. She's like a princess, you know. Mm-hmm. But over time I started like started thinking, "Oh, I see." Because I don't yeah, I get it. Okay, okay. And then um, I was in 10th grade, which I don't know what age that would have been, probably 15. And I was in my uh, uh, biology class. Uh, and this, <laughs> I still, I don't know if I share her name, but I still remember her. Her name was Kiliana Rossi. Mm-hmm. She was a Brazilian, Brazilian exchange student. And she had long flowing hair and she looked like a princess herself. She walked in and I swear to you, she walked in in slow motion. <laughs> My whole life changed in that moment. Wow. I was because I had never really put two and two together. She walked in, and I was like, "Oh!" And she was like, "It was like it was such a movie scene because she was it was later in this in the semester, so she it wasn't the first day of school. She was an exchange student who was just getting there, and she was like being introduced. And she walked in, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I have the biggest crush on this person." And I had a, had a boyfriend before that, and. I had been like, um, I remember kissing him and thinking, oh, is this what everybody, the fuss is about? <laughs> mm, okay, I guess I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. You know, <laughs> I was just like, mm. uh, but I thought that's what it was, right? And then I see her and I have more emotion and feelings than I've had for any like guy. And then I just spent that whole semester just crushing on her and trying to find reasons to talk to her at lunch and all that. And I started to understand, okay, I know what this is. So then I started, um, I I had an online girlfriend who became an in-person girlfriend. This is the first of many. And it was, I come, came out to myself. I had made the decision. I am never going to say this out loud mm. um, to anyone in my family. 
Because? Because I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, my gosh. And in, as a Jehovah's Witness, they believe that it's the, one of the biggest sins you could ever have is to be gay. And in fact, I remember there was a gay man who was at our um, at our church, Kingdom Hall, and he had been involved in some sort of murder or something. It was really weird. And they had prayed that he himself would get the get killed mm. because he was all sorts of sinning. Like the murder and the gay were the same to them. Yeah. So I had that in my mind and I had never subscribed to that. And I was also no longer a witness. I had left it. But that was all I knew Mm -hmm. was it was wrong. And my mother certainly, as a black woman from the South, who before then was devout in other ways and now is coming out of being a witness, there's no way, even if she loves me, there's no way she's going to be able to accept it because she believes XYZ. Yes. So I just made this decision. I'm going to have this online girlfriend and I'm never going to see her, meet her. And then I'm just never going to ever admit it. And then I'm going to marry a boy and then I'm going to go and that's going to be my life. And I was online on AOL with this with this girl and my mom walks in my room and we had we've always had like a funny kind of exchange like we're we're more sisters and whatever. So I cover the screen because I don't want her to see I'm talking to this girl. And she goes, you don't have to, you don't have to cover the screen. I, I know, I know everything. And I, she was joking. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, you don't know that I'm pregnant. You know, I was just being so silly. Mm-hmm. And she's like, what I know about you, you won't be getting pregnant anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? And then, and then she looked around the room really dramatically. And I said, what are you looking for? What are you doing? And she's like, I'm looking for your Ellen DeGeneres poster. And she had just come out that year. Oh. And I was like, oh, my God. And then my mom left, closed the door, and went to work. I stayed home from school that day because I thought, I'm going. You're going to get it. I'm going to get it. And then I'm going to get kicked out of this home. Oh my and God. my mom was having a nervous breakdown. And everything is messed up. You had up. this whole story. I had the whole story. I was all prepared. I can still feel and see where I was when it happened because I was it was 23 years ago. So it was 24 years ago. I remember the room. I remember saying, this is the last time I'm, my mom's going to be able to talk to me. And... This is it. So she comes home and I'm just like, like, so can we talk about what you said? And she's like, I've just been, you know, she's like, whatever. I said, mom, you know, recently you made this joke about um, a gay man. You made this joke that was kind of hurtful to me, but I didn't say anything. If you knew I was whatever this is, why did you make that joke? And she said, I was trying to get you to react. I was trying to get you to tell me. And I was like, oh, okay. And I said, okay, so uh, can I go stay with like your sister? Like, where am I supposed to go? Oh, you assume you were getting Yeah. And she said, you you ain't going anywhere. She's like, she's like, you were born like this. I don't understand it, but you are not going anywhere. And I get emotional thinking about it right now. She's like, you're not going anywhere. You're so fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that even more now after talking to thousands of LGBTQ oh, sure. youth and, and other and so um, she, it took her a few years to stop calling my girlfriends my friend or things like that. But she has been amazing ever since that day. And in fact, 
uh, I used to sell T-shirts that said I'd go gay for, and it was customized. So I started with I'd go gay for Angelina. I'd go and in my 20s, you know. Right, right. And so I called her one day from California where I was living, and I said I wanted to warn her because she was cool, but I also knew she had her friends to, to answer to. So I said, um, I just want to give you a heads up that I'm going to be selling these shirts, and you may see it my name pop up somewhere, and it's I'd go gay for. And she's like, what does that mean? And I explained it to her. I said, it's like you have a crush on somebody, but you're straight, but you still go gay for them. And she said, she was paused. She didn't say anything. And I thought, oh, here we go again. I'm going to, something's, she's, this is it. This is the limit. And she goes, make one for me that says, I'd go gay for Oprah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, okay, we're good again. You know, so it, it's it been, that's been just the most beautiful thing. And she's been so great. I, she, was she at your wedding? I know you got married. She was. Recently. She was the only person at my wedding. Really? She was the only, your only witness? So we didn't, yeah, we had, a, we got married at our, at our apartment. And we didn't want to have a big wedding. And plus, my wife is German. And so we didn't know exactly what date she would get the, the visa. And So you couldn't so we, plan something. Exactly. So for us, our personalities, we were just like, the best thing in the world right now would be to elope. And then I was like, well, my mom would not like that so my mom flew from flew herself from texas for a day she didn't even stay overnight she flew herself from texas she was our only witness um and she she loves anna with all her heart Mm. and asks about her every time we talk more so than me (laughs) and has been that way with any anyone i brought home wow it's it's if if they're good enough for you they're good enough for me and it doesn't matter who they are what what race they are what background they are um, and the fact that they've, except for one, have all been women. That she's is. just been incredible. She's a she's a poster child for how say. you would want someone yeah. to react. Because she even jokes with you, and and I mean, and she is incredibly protective as well. So she has shut down friendships if someone says something bad about about me. Mm-hmm. It's over. That's a non-starter for her. And I have to go to her and say, Mom, it's okay. They don't have, you know, they're not they involved. Just don't you can go back and talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, but I was ready, you know. And some, and it's so interesting. She will shut you down if you try to do that. And she's talking to people from deep south um, with very ingrained in their thinking. Amazing. But it's no question to her. Wow. Yeah. Does she understand what you do now for a living? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's with me a lot, too. Yeah. I bring her on a lot of things, and in fact, she has her own kind of brand and personality because um, if I bring her to a, like a speaking event and I walk in, you know, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm here, I'm good, and people are like throwing their arms up and like, oh, my God, and I, and I go, I put my arms up, and they just go right past me. Mrs. And go Sims. hug her instead. <laughs> <laughs> You're here. She's the biggest oh, star. Anytime I bring her anywhere, she's surrounded by people, like she's, uh, you know, just holding court, mm-hmm. and um she gets it and in fact the more you know how you kind of learn more and more about people in your family especially your parents but she's definitely an entrepreneur herself and just never really had a chance to act on it but Innovate. always had that mi- yeah. that mind and um so she's loving she goes when she goes to these confer- tech conferences she'll go with a notebook and she'll and go notes. and take notes. I might be in a green room or I might be walking around and she's sitting there listening to all the speakers and meeting with the founders of companies and saying, let me tell you something about your company and give you some advice. I mean, she's soaking it in and, and also dispersing lots of knowledge and wisdom. Wow. She's like, she's like the queen of the boardroom. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, Honorary is. boardroom yeah, member. Absolutely. How many speaking and ma- engagements do you have per year, would you say? I mean, it's increased a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, it varies. Um, 
I was out 300 days of travel in 2018. Good that God. was ridiculous. But I, I would say I spoke probably 100 times 2018. This year, probably I tried to cut it in half. What do people tend to want to hear from you, organizations that invite you to speak? What do they I, want to it hear? It does vary. Um, but it, I think... I think the origin story of the, of the fun backstage of what I do, mm-hmm. kind of the novelty of it being... Plus your story. Yeah, I think that is still novel to people. It has a little bit of a shelf life left um, where it still resonates just to hear the, the basic story of what I've done. And because mm-hmm. we've gone on to now, we went from it just being me and, and, and learning about investing to I've invested in about 130 companies and raised $10 million. And so that whole four year story is is enough to fill a fireside uh, conversation. And then other and then if they've already had me there to speak about that, or if, they're, if they want a little bit something different, we'll talk about what's next, like, you know, it can't just be this one small fund that's doing it. And there's certainly, it certainly isn't. There are a lot of other people who are doing it who don't have the same spotlight. And it's about how do we take the real change that's happened in the last five years and getting more people represented, which is the important part. And how do we make that accelerated change and growth Mm -hmm. and innovation where all of us have a piece of this. Like when I talk, when I, at the top of this, I say, imagine DoorDash and Airbnb and WeWork, all of those are started by white men. And what I want is that the norm is that we all have a piece of these legacy companies and of these, and and even if you don't want a billion dollar company, which not everybody should try. uh, I, I love the angel work that people do. And I, in fact, become, became an angel after being a VC because I like it even better. Mm-hmm. I Even if you want to start a company that is making you six figures a year and you have most of the ownership of, and it's just, it's not meant to be a billion dollar company. How do we get more people in a situation where they can do that? Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's my activism. It's, it's my life's work. It's, it's your, it is your life's work. Mm-hmm. And uh, final question. Do you know the latest stats in terms of when you first uh, took this on, mm-hmm. 90% were white male. Has that yeah. shifted at all? It's shifted slightly. And the where it's shifted the most the most is in white women. So it's not the best news, but it's news. And oftentimes I'm, I'm accused of being too optimistic and giving too much credit. But I think we really need to look at that because that's where it starts. It always starts there. If anything's going to change with for white men, it starts with white women. Yeah, like look at the suffragette movement, right? Mm-hmm. The women's yeah. voting. Hello. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So right. it's so what we've seen is that uh, women, they call it the women category, but it, we know that it's mostly white women getting this, uh, has gone from something like um, they went from from 2% to 6% to 12% and now it's like 16% of funding for the past 12 months and that's that's a lot of work and that's a big deal. It won't be fair until it's 50, 50 51% but that's a big deal and mm-hmm. so uh, for women of color or um, I think in this cat- in this case the category is black women we receive less than 0.2% of venture right. funding and that number has not changed by much over the uh it's changed if it's changed it's changed for a couple of reasons one is the work that backstage is done and uh, i think 45 percent of our companies are led by black women the rest are led by black men or w- white women or other women of color or lgbtq etc uh, and also 
there are a couple of black women who've had monster deals that really, when you have so few dollars going to black women. So 2018, there was $130 billion in venture capital that was deployed in the United States. Mm. Of that, approximately $260 million went to black women. That Yeah, the percentages. That, that are- is also the same amount of money that went into the last round of funding, one round of funding for the for the e-scooter bird. We shared that as a nation of black women in venture, and, and I'm sorry, in startups. Almost half of that went to one black woman who is an amazing woman named Julia Collins, who runs a company who's the first black woman unicorn, mm-hmm. a billion dollar company. Um, She's, she runs which company, the scooters? No. No, she runs. I'm saying that the of the 260, which I'm comparing them oh, now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's not. I, I shouldn't say that she's the first black woman unicorn because you know there's Pat McGrath, there's all that. But she is the first uh, uh, in the venture space um, in the U.S. to to have a to lead a a startup that is and it's called Zoom Pizza. She's um, uh, stepping away from that to do some other things, but she did that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so the point of all of that is to say that of we're getting crumbs still. I say we want the cake, not the crumbs, right? Um, and I think that just like the the numbers for white women has changed, and because of all of the agitation and disruption that uh, backstage, but in so many, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of black man- fund managers who have just been unsung heroes, basically. I think that over the next five years, you're just going to see a complete complete turnaround shift absolutely yeah looking forward to that and finally i know i said the previous question was the last one i couldn't help but think about what you said in one podcast where you were talking to uh this this woman and i think tracy i want to say i i'm not sure but you were talking about how um to embrace the privilege that they have Mm. you are one of the few who doesn't refer to white privilege as a negative oh but rather you're saying yeah go with it take it i'm saying it's a thing yeah Yeah. let's be real it's a thing uh you might be talking about amy griffin on the third episode yes the one who was vogue who worked for vogue no actually that's stacy london stacy london so this is your first million the podcast that i host the uh we had a a episode a live episode stacy london who some people may know from what not to wear a tv show we talked about privilege and and there and and amy griffin is a third episode we've talked about privilege and sharing her privilege as well yeah i think that um sometimes obviously sometimes white privilege is a bad thing you know people will do i always say privilege which everyone has in some capacity every single person has a privilege over someone else privilege is not the bad word in my view entitlement is the bad word. Mm. privilege is something that you are given it's inherited to inherited by you um in some way or form um or, or kind of glommed on to, like I have now what I call augmented privilege because I, the last four years, now have more money than I used to, now I have more power and more leverage than I used to. It's augmented privilege that I've taken and siphoned, right? But entitlement is something that you have to choose. You make a conscious decision to be entitled. Yeah, to use your privilege as entitlement. Well, no, I'm saying the negative form, the negative form of, of privilege it. is entitlement. So the positive form of privilege is to use your privilege to help others. It's what uh, Michelle Obama says, send the elevator back. It's It's what conscious funding hopefully is doing. Absolutely. 
Yeah. I right? don't think I would have any passion for, for this. I certainly wouldn't have passion for venture capitalism, but I wouldn't have any passion for this if I weren't seeing the results of the seeding of underrepresented people every single day. That's where the fun is. That's where the excitement and the passion is. Mm -hmm. Wow. Right on. <laughs> all right. All right. I almost want to do that joke. She, you posted something on Twitter and we were like, someone walked up to you while you were considering buying a $15,000 painting for your home. And she's like, where y'all bathrooms at? Well, she did. She said it with a little bit of a twang because it was it was, yes, this white woman. <laughs> Oh, walks up to you asking. It happens all the time, but yeah. she, this one was so funny because it was like I was, I was a friend of mine was putting. I mean, you know, I'm a collector of his work, and we're we're acquaintances, I should say, and have been following him for years. Was not able to ever buy anything before, but he did a customized version of my Fast Company cover that I bought from him a couple like a year ago. So I went to his the okay. opening of his gallery and everything, and I was like, "There's this one I've just had my eye on. It was fifteen grand." I have been collecting art and it was something I was thinking about, you know, purchasing. And this white woman comes up to me and she's like, and she was angry. The funniest part of it was that she was angry that I couldn't tell her <laughs> where the she bathroom She didn't ask was. me, if, I mean, where is y'all's bathroom? As if I worked there. Yeah. And I'm like, because that's why you would why, be there. Why, why do you assume? Why didn't you go up to anybody else in this room? Right. Why is you? Is it because I was the only black person at the time? Mm -hmm. Is it? And, for, and what always gets me is when they're, angry that you then are not what the they person. expected yeah you're yeah. not the help she's just like how dare you yeah instead of being like mortified that you made the mistake which i can deal with i can flow with you there instead of that it's more like well where's the bath you know <laughs> like i still need the bathroom and you're supposed to be that person <laughs> yeah and your response was precious what was it i just said i i said i was she and i were gonna have to wonder together because and i figure it I, out I, yeah, figure it out because i don't know <laughs> You know, I just said, I, I, I just kind of shrugged at her. I didn't even speak. Yeah, she yeah. didn't deserve my my, vo my vocal cords in that moment <laughs> oh to be my expressed. I just uh, shrugged at her like, I guess we're going to all have to look for it. We're going to have to all kind of wonder where it is because you're not going to find out from me. Yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. know. Oh, it was boy. just, and I, the, the thing of it was that I was holding this, the Bible of um, the pricing guide. Yeah, you clearly so you, you were know, shopping. Yeah, you know that. You're, you're, everyone over there who was huddled over there was people people who were not just observing they were going to purchase this thing and and um it was just funny amazing yeah really funny i love by the way your podcast studio it is oh, thank beautiful you. the view is just gorgeous thank you. you are what they call a bola <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah i'm really excited about this and i'm still building it out but it's uh i just love podcasting so much yeah i hope to do more and more well, thank you for coming on. And this is this is exciting. Thank you. Right on, right on. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. You can say goodbye. Bye. Oh, how do you say goodbye in German? Uh oh. Should we call Anna? <laughs> I wonder if she she's probably on the roof right now reading because she's uh, just a lovely person who who would do that. Uh, uh oh. Choose. You can say choose. Choose. Yeah, choose. Okay, listeners, choose. <laughs> Go ahead, Arlen. Choose. Choose. <laughs>
to anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, etc., and look for What the Fockery, F-O-C-K-E-R-Y, and you will find all of her archives. She has 30 plus interviews and they're all awesome. So thanks again. I'll see you next time.